This message first aired on the radio on July 28, 2003. We're taking up the very interesting subject of dispensations, and our subject has gone on for some many days now as we've traced our way through few of the dispensations. And for those of you who haven't been listening, we can remind you that a dispensation is the house order of God. It is the rule of God's house or the rules of God's household as he has set them up uh, at various times through human history. The first dispensation, a rather easy, easily defined household of God, was simply the household of Adam and Eve. And God set those arrangements up with Adam. He put him to sleep and gave him Eve, and then Adam showed what kind of a parent he's going to be for us. He sinned. He violated the only uh, restriction that God placed upon him. And, of course, we've had that problem since, the problem of sin. And so that first dispensation, which we called the dispensation of innocence, having joined others who so named it, we found uh, resulted in something repetitious, the failure of man and the faithfulness of God. So man failed, driven from the garden, but God providing him a better hope than certain death which he, which he began to experience. As God told him, dying thou shalt die. God gave him a better hope, uh, sacrificed some animals, made coats to cover the shame of Adam and Eve, and sent them packing out of the garden, and yet in mercy preserved the way, or kept the way, to the tree of life, uh, keeping man from finding a permanent fallen state for himself, which he would do, left to his own device, and also promising a Redeemer through the woman Eve. Then we proceeded to the second arrange, set of arrangements of God, which we called, as others have, the dispensation of conscience, really characterized by the life of Cain, we might say. And uh, Cain showing that he was uh, in the image of Adam, a sinner, hated his brother, murdered his brother Abel, and uh, God did not uh, then requite blood for blood for that murder, but uh, let Cain live with the consciousness of his own sin and depended upon the conscience of man. We even nicknamed that dispensation the dispensation of Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide. And we found out that whereas you may have thought that was good advice, if you're if you're my age and you watched the wonderful world of color from Walt Disney, you found out that Jiminy Cricket, sweet as he was, lousy advice, your conscience cannot be your guide. It is more your umpire and comes into play after the fact more than it does before, and it doesn't help you to do the right thing. It only tells you uh, when you've done evil. And so that dispensation ended with such a horrible result that God had to bring in the whole flood and destroy every living thing as angelic forces erupted into the human race, and had God not brought the deluge, and destroyed every living creature, save those on the ark, and Noah, and his wife, and his sons, and their wives, uh, there would be no human race left to produce the Savior. And God opened up another dispensation then, which we called, again, with others, the dispensation of human government, where God set forth for Noah that he would have three parameters— uh, be fruitful and multiply, eat meat, but don't drink the blood of the meat, and so that the thought of man would not become only evil continually. And that didn't last very long, as 
God ordered through Noah the his his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham rebelled. In fact, the the grandson of Ham, the son of Cush, Cush the son of Ham, Nimrod the son of Cush, uh, Nimrod meaning we will rebel, set up his kingdom on earth. The first reference of a human kingdom on earth. He set up his own kingdom in the face of God, became a mighty hunter before the Lord, and invaded Shem and the Shemites and then set up a name for himself and a tower uh, to distort the truth of God, set up a world religion, and distorted God's truth in uh, through that tower, and made himself a city and a kingdom. And God came down, saw what man was doing, remembered that he promised not to destroy all of man. So instead of destroying man, he confounded the language, spread man out across the land mass, that was a single landmass at that time, and having spread man out onto a single landmass, then in the days of Peleg, cleaved that landmass and floated it out and stuck uh, oceans in between men so they couldn't get in trouble with each other as fast. Well, to a substantial extent, we've overcome, well, I won't say substantially, but to an extent, we've overcome those oceans now. So we have the potential of getting just as evil as we care to get these days, and boy, are we. Now, those things being said, and that, and man having failed at the Tower of Babel, uh, and God doing what he did, he now turns to the dispensation that we are taking up, which some have called the dispensation of family, others call the dispensation of promise. Uh, we haven't come up with a better term, so we'll stick with promise for now and just leave it at that. But really, it's the dispensation of, of Abraham. And uh, if we could characterize a little further, it is that God had tried now repeatedly to lead the whole human race into the truth, and now he determines that he will raise up a vehicle or an agency or a family from which he will raise up a single nation and that way approach the rest of the world indirectly. And uh, this is what God is going to do with Abraham as we read about it. And we looked ahead, and we know what God thought of Abraham. As it tells us in Genesis 18, verse 19, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken to him or of him. So we're taking up the life of Abraham, and we've taken up two aspects of his life, and we began the third one, and I want to just kind of jump in mid, you know, into that stream that we've started. But we saw the call of Abraham when God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He called him out from his father's house. He called him out from that natural way that he understood. And that's what God does to anyone who believes him. He calls us out. Whatever, whatever we're in, he calls us out of it. We're somewhere in the world when we hear the word of God. When we hear the call of God, we're somewhere in the world, and he calls to us. In fact, we're like Adam and Eve who hid themselves from God, and it is not we who seek after God and somehow then, through much trouble and difficulty, find him. It is God who seeks us out. He's the one who came to seek and to save that which is lost. He's the one who diligently searches until he finds us. What we find is we find him finding us. That's what we find. And so the Lord came to Abram and had and told him, get out of your father's house, leave into a land I'll show you. 
And that's what God says to you. He says, get out of whatever it is that you're in. And when you're in the world, you're in something. Now, I don't care to go about what all it might be. If you're hearing my voice today and you're in the world and you have your sins upon you, you know you're in something and it's not right. And it is God through his word that calls you out of that. And he doesn't tell you all what where you're going to end up. He just calls you out of it. And he'll show you later, as you live a life of faith, he'll show you all that he intends for you. And this, of course, is what happened to Abram. Now, Abram left his father's house, and he left Ur of the Chaldees. And Ur of the Chaldees was in the land of Shinar and, of course, was the center of the religious system that Nimrod had set up. So he had to get out of that old religious system. And let me tell you something, friend. God calls you out of that old religious system that you're in. We all find our way into some kind of religious system, whether it's just a traditional one that we inherited or whether we piece together our own when we went to college or whatever it is, whether we pick it up off TV and your in the music CDs or whatever, whatever you use to piece together your way of thinking. God calls you out of it, and he calls you to listen to his word because as the book of Isaiah teaches us, God's thoughts are not our thoughts, and God's ways are not our ways. He's different than we are. He's God, we're not. I've said that before, I'll say it again. Needs to, shouldn't need to be said, needs to be said. So Abraham was called, and Abraham, having been called, was kept separate from the world. And this is what we saw last time when we saw Abraham and Lot part ways. And what brought up the issue of Abraham and Lot parting ways. Well, it was great wealth, a great increase in goods. Nothing can create trouble like riches. And uh, Abraham and Lot got rich in Egypt. Every evidence, Abraham should have never been in Egypt. Uh, he went down to Egypt. He came up out He came up out of Egypt. Anytime you go into Egypt, that which is a picture of the world, uh, anytime you go out into the world system, even if you get enriched by it, it's nothing but trouble. And Lot seemed to have loved the world and pitched his tent toward Sodom and went the way that his eyes saw. And he walked by sight and not by faith. Abraham, coming up out of Egypt, building an altar unto the Lord, getting back on spiritual track, what we might say. Abram uh, walking again by faith. Now, how do you walk by faith? Well, it's not blind faith. It might be blind because you're not walking by sight, but faith is not blind Faith walks by the eyes of your understanding, which are opened according to the Word of God. And only in spiritual things, only a man walking by faith and not by sight is useful to anybody, even including those who walk by sight. So Lot walked by sight. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. Next thing we know, as the, as the world system went into rebellion, maybe today they'd call it a permanent revolution, whatever term it is, as the world system went into rebellion, uh, there was Lot in the middle of it, and he was captured along with the king of Sodom as he got involved, too involved, in the politics of this world. Now, we've looked at that before uh, from the point of view of the leaven of Herod, and we can look at it here again and realize that you get too involved in the politics of this world, then you get the results. And when the king of Sodom was captured. Lot was captured with him. You know, that was the problem with Lot, as he hung around in the near the Salt Sea, 
gee, I almost said Salt Lake City. Wouldn't that have been funny? But he was in the area of the Salt Sea. He was hanging around the slime pits. And you hang around slime pits long enough, pretty soon you're in them. So Lot was taken with the king of Sodom. So so Abraham was called, and Abraham was separated. And now that brings us to the third thing. Abraham is a warrior. That's one of the things we don't like to admit about Abraham, is what a great man he really is. But uh, here we look at him, and we find out that when it came time to fight, uh, he fought. Lest we uh, misinterpret the Scripture or apply it wrongly, there is a time to fight, Jehovah is a man of war. God's uh, people are Christian soldiers, but our warfare is not carnal. That is to say, we do not war as the world wars. Uh, We don't put on the armor of men. We don't need to put on fatigues and camouflage and Kevlar and carry uh, automatic weapons and RPGs and uh, grenades and ride in Bradleys or M1A1s. Uh, That's not what God means when he calls us warriors. We put on the whole armor of God or the panoply of God because the weapons of our warfare are spiritual, and our warfare is against wicked spirits in heavenly places. So as we look at Abraham here, we see that Abraham, when it came time to rescue his nephew Lot, he was up to the task of being a warrior. And uh, I always enjoy this about Abraham. Uh, you remember I told you I'd, I'd call him Abraham wrongly when, while his name is still Abram. But when Abram needed, when somebody needed to rescue Lot, it wasn't all the people that Lot liked best in the world. It was, it was his uncle Abram who wandered around, going through the land that God was showing him. I say wandered not purposelessly, but purposefully, according to the Word of God, despite the fact that Everyone would have said he's so heavenly-minded, he's no earthly good. Abram was the one man not only capable of rescuing Lot, but willing to rescue Lot. You want to be useful to your brother, to your sister who have wandered off the path, your children. You must be spiritually-minded people. Uh, There is no one useful for the troubles that this world brings upon those that it ensnares except for those who listen to the Word of God. And don't you worry about what the world says, and don't you worry about the world's credentialization and the world's qualification and everything else that the world would system would put upon you. The man of God is armed and equipped to do anything that God requires him to do. And so we have here now a foe for Keter Laomor, who's more mighty than all the kings that were that were against him and more mighty than all the kings that were with him he has a man of god with the word of god and so it says here that uh, when the king of sodom and others rebelled in the 13th year against keter laomor that they fell in the slime pits and they were captured and it said uh, these other kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals, I'm now reading in Genesis 14:11, and went their way, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. Verse 13, there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, and remember a Hebrew is one who's passing over or who, who passed over. In this case, perhaps it meant that he 
that he passed over from the other side of the Euphrates River because that's what Eber did. In any case, uh, Hebrew, uh, the word Hebrew, means one who's passing over or who's passing through. And let that be a lesson to us when we think about the book of Hebrews, uh, which we'll turn to in just a moment. But it says, There came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and brother of Aner, and these were confederate with Abram. So Abram had his confederates. He had made agreement with the uh, with one of the Amorites, Mamre, and of course he he who blessed Abraham was always blessed, and he who cursed Abraham was always cursed. So we have we have uh, Mamre the Amorite, and we also have the brother of Aner who who were uh, confederate with Abram. And then we have this verse. Genesis fourteen fourteen, and when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, three hundred and eighteen, and pursued them unto Dan, or to the southern portion of the land of Israel, as it becomes later defined. And I want to say this is what God does. Uh, here, Abram, a picture of exactly what God does. Abram's household is now the household of God. God has no other household at the time of Abram. Abraham Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. God wasn't speaking to anyone else. God was speaking to Abram. Here, now, out of the house of God, or the house of Abram, which is God's house, he trained his own servants in his own house. And let me tell you something. This is what God does. He trains his own servants in his own house. Maybe you want to be the servant of God. Let me tell you something. Maybe you're a young man today, young woman today, or maybe you're an old man or an old woman, but I think uh, this is a, sen- a sentiment I find more, much more commonly among young fellows. You want to be the Lord's servant, and you don't consider yourself to be the Lord's servant. And so you want to become qualified so that you can serve the Lord. There are so many young people with a right urge but bad advice today. That's a right thing to want to be the Lord's servant. And there will be a day, as if the Lord counts you faithful, there will be a day when you come to know you are the Lord's servant, and you'll have all that confidence and all that faith that goes with that. But let me tell you this. God does not send you away somewhere outside of his household to get trained. God does not train men today, and he never did, in seminaries. God does not train men today in universities. God trains his servants in his own house, and the place of training is the house of God. And the house of God today is not Abram's house. It is not some substitute for Abram's household. The house of God today is what the Scripture says the house of God is today. The house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now you may say, well, how do I find that? That's not going on. You look, you'll find. God still has churches today where you can be trained. You ask me where? Well, that's something I can't really comment on extensively, but I'll tell you this. God is faithful to train his own servants in his own house, and uh, he'll train them in a way that is effective for the works that he has to do.
Today, one of the things we find in Christianity is that there are not men trained up in the house of God. They get trained elsewhere. They're not trained at all. And so they're not equipped for the exigencies and the emergencies and the purposes that God needs today. God doesn't have to change his plan. He anticipated everything when he established his church. The means and modes of men have never and will never achieve the purposes of God. And so here were these servants, these fellows who lived in tent with Abram, these fellows who were qualified to take care of Abram's cattle, who were qualified to set up and live extensively in the, in the lands wherein Abram was traveling, these men who had never known war before were trained by Abram and able to be commanded by Abram, and they were an effective fighting force for the purpose of rescuing Lot. And you look here what it says. Now, let's not forget, though, that the commander-in-chief here is Abram, and as such, in the place of the head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'll just also tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is to be the head of every church. And if he's not the head of the church you're in, just get out. And he divided himself against them. That is, Abraham divided himself against Keterlaramor and the kings that were with him. He divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night. And this is the first reference of night fighters. Notice Notice that Abram was a night fighter, and his men were night fighters. I'm sure that was a shock to these men. And let me tell you that that's what God does. God surprises the world by not using the world's methods. The world's methods of fighting were no doubt massive force in the daytime. Abram's method of fighting was, I'll take my small number of men, 318 fellas, I'll take my 318 guys, and even though that's a small number, I'll divide them in half, and I'll attack at night. So he surprised them both by his strategy and by his timing. And isn't that just like God to do that, to take the world by surprise with his strategy and his timing? So they came by night and smote them and put them on the run. In fact, uh, 10,000 must have fled against a one, as they were no doubt outnumbered by five kings and, and all their forces. Uh, but nevertheless, God was uh, fighting on their side, and they... They smote them and pursued them all the way down to the south land. And then we have verse 16. And he, that is Abram, brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. And so we see what these kings did when uh, Keterlaomer took the king of Sodom and all of his bunch. We're going to see about the king of Sodom here in a minute. That they took all the women and they took all the stuff. Uh, it says here, his goods, they took everybody, and they took him captive. Of all these, Abraham did not lose one. And don't we see a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, uh, of those that thou gavest me, I have not lost one, save the son of perdition. And of course, that was Judas, and he was never given to the Lord, because the Lord said, did I not myself choose you, and yet one of you is a devil, Indeed, one of them was a devil. So here we have Abram getting all the goods and all the women and Lot and the people. He won them all. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Keterlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. So here now we have the, the king of Sodom 
who fell in battle against Keterleomor, and very likely the king himself uh, escaped because that's what kings do. They send young men out to die and uh, get taken. And, and uh, so now the, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram after his return from slaughtering Keterleomor and the kings that were with him in the valley of Sheva in the Kingsdale. Now we see this wonderful brief passage which is a parenthesis in my Bible, and it's a parenthetical statement because it it gives us details of what happened before Abram met the king of Sodom. And so we're going to take up today, in the time that we have left, two things. We're going to take up this matter of Melchizedek, and we're going to take up this matter of Abram's dealings with the king of Sodom, and I hope they're good lessons for all of us. So now we'll read verses 18 through 20 of Genesis 14, and we'll read about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he, that is Abram, gave him, that is Melchizedek, tithes, or 10%, of everything he had. Now, this little parenthetical statement is a very important thing for us to inspect and drill down upon. First of all, we have this fella, Melchizedek. Now, that's big word, hard to spell maybe for some. Uh, this is the king of righteousness is what this word means, Melchizedek, or the king of righteousness. He just pops in out of nowhere, as it were, uh, at least in the context of the Scripture here. And in the context of this passage, he pops in out of nowhere as part of the lesson. And we'll we'll see this when we look in the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 about Melchizedek. But he comes, all of a sudden he shows up, he's the king of Salem. Salem is the name of Jerusalem. So he is, here we find this fellow, he wasn't involved in the war, but he's the king of Jerusalem, and he is the king of righteousness. Now, there's a lot of speculation as to who he actually was. He shows up here without us knowing where he came from and where he goes, because he's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ as the one who comes out of eternity and goes back into eternity and who is without genealogy because he ever was. And uh, even though we have the genealogy of the Lord Jesus as through his mother, we know that God the Father was his father and that uh, he was miraculously born of a virgin, the Holy Spirit creating what was necessary for that holy union in the womb of Mary. And so here he's a wonderful picture of that one who is without genealogy. Now, some would suggest to you that Melchizedek was actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself as a theophany. That's not true. We'll see the Lord Jesus Christ as theophany in person, uh, taking up a body, visiting Abraham, later when Abraham doesn't go to get Lot, but angels go to get Lot, because Lot's going to find his way right back into Sodom. So this is not a theophany of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a real person. And you may wonder who he is. My best conclusion on this is that this is likely Shem. Uh, Shem came over from across the flood. He was only 100 years old. He lived a long time on this side. Uh, certainly he was given the tabernacle of God. So very possibly this is Shem. 
No matter, though, he's a priest uh, of the Most High God. Now, Shem certainly would qualify to be a priest of the Most High God. And I want to point out to you that he, while he's a priest and a king, he is not a high priest and a king. He's a priest of some order of priests. And, and he's a great priest, and he's a great man, and we know that he's a great man because he blesses Abram, and Abram pays, gives him 10% of everything that he has. Now, if you'll look in Hebrews chapter 7, we can read more about this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. We can look at Hebrews 7, verse 2, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. The word Salem, uh, meaning peace, so he's a king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ is the prince of peace, and he comes again when he comes again, whoops up on his enemies, he will make peace on earth, finally, and he will be the king of peace at that time. Hear about Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abiding a priest continually. And so we see why Melchizedek's genealogy is left out, where we just see him pop out. We don't see any record of his death. We don't see any record of his birth, because as a figure, he is made like unto the Son of God. That is to say, he is a figure or foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ and the priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice that Melchizedek comes to Abram. He doesn't come to the king of Sodom. He doesn't come to Keterlaomer. He only comes to Abram. And that is another wonderful picture because our Lord Jesus Christ is a high priest only over the house of God. My friend, if you're without Christ, if you have not believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not have a priest. He is a high priest over the house of God. You need a Savior, and when you're saved, part of what he will do will become your advocate. But right now, you don't need the Lord Jesus Christ as your high priest. You need the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and he's my Savior, and he's my high priest. It's a wonderful thing. Now, Melchizedek, being a great priest, made like unto the Son of God, was not a high priest. He was a priest. Now consider how great this man was, uh, Hebrews 7, 4 reads, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So he gave 10% of what he had just won in, through his conquest, and the Bible tells us, consider how great this fellow was. Maybe you don't understand that, but that's probably because you don't consider how great Abram is. But when you consider how great Abram is, that there's no greater name that can be referenced among just just regular men besides Abram, the father of all the faithful, and when he gives 10% to this Melchizedek, he is a picture of the one even greater than Abram, the one who said to the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And he's the 
this this one greater than Abraham is also greater than David. He's the one that David said, the Lord said to my Lord. Who is this Lord that David referenced? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider how great this man was, this Melchizedek. And then it says in verse 5, And verily they that are the sons of Levi, who receive the office of priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And with, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. Well, we think about how great Abram is, and we find one greater than him coming along. And uh, we want to talk about a couple of other things. Uh, Of course, this one greater than Abram, another reason why we consider that it might be Shem, because he would be the patriarch of every, really in the place of Noah, he would be the patriarch of the whole earth. But we we don't care to make a huge point of that. It it may not be Shem. uh, but But he is a great man. And now we see what he does with Abram. Well, he blesses him. But before he does, it says in verse 18 of Genesis 14, Melchizedek, king of peace, or king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine for Abram. Now, of course, you can't really look past this scripture. If you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, you can't really look past this without thinking about what the Lord Jesus Christ left for us to do to remember his death until he comes. And here you see the order of events. Here comes Melchizedek and brings forth bread and wine for Abraham to partake of. And that doesn't that speak to us of our Lord Jesus Christ leaving those very elements for us to remember his death until he comes. But the difference is here, you see Melchizedek is with Abram. And as Christians are uh, commended as often as they partake of bread and wine to, uh, together to do it for a remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we could speak more specifically on that, uh, and we will at a later time. The difference is we do such a, a thing in the absence of our Lord Jesus Christ. I had the privilege just yesterday of meeting with some of God's people in our local church and remembering the Lord Jesus Christ in his death by partaking of uh, the symbol of a loaf of bread. It started out as a loaf of bread. We thank God for it. We spoke uh, in praise of our Lord Jesus Christ. We prayed with one another. And when it came around, it was still a loaf of bread. And uh, when we were all done, it was the leftover loaf of bread. But we, we remembered our Lord Jesus Christ, and we passed a cup around. It it started out as a as a cup of wine, and it ended up as a cup of wine, and we drank wine. We didn't drink blood. And so I just say that for my Catholic listeners out there, those of you who, who've stuck around, if any. But the difference was that our Lord Jesus Christ, though present in our th- hearts by faith, and though present, omnipresent as God Almighty, in human form apart from us, in human form, at the hev- at the right hand of God in the heavenlies. He is somewhere. He has flesh and bones. He's somewhere, but it is somewhere absent from us. And so we remember him dur- in that way during his absence. Here we find Melchizedek not absent from Abraham, but with him. There's a picture there also. 
And let me say this, my friends. Here's the simple picture. Our warfare, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't war against flesh and blood. We war against wicked spirits in the heavenly places. After we get the victory, that's when, after we conduct that war, that is when we will see the Lord Jesus Christ personally. He will come to us. He will catch us up. We'll be with him. And in that day, we'll find out if he's pleased with us. Here clearly that Melchizedek, very pleased with the warfare of Abram. So we have this wonderful picture of our Lord Jesus Christ in Melchizedek. And I just want to remind you that the great rewards from our Lord Jesus Christ are not here below. It's not going to happen here, and it's not going to happen in the middle of our warfare. It'll happen after our warfare is finished. Well, now Abram, in return, gives tithes to Melchizedek, just so that we'd understand a couple of things, which will become more clear to us later as we dis- as we look into the dispensation of law, which follows this one. But though God invented a priesthood for the tribe of Levi through Moses, and by the way, that's the only priesthood, the only priesthood that God established besides this priesthood of Melchizedek. That's the only priesthoods there are. Other priesthoods that men create have nothing whatsoever to do with God. Nothing. That would be uh, the priesthood of Nimrod. He had his priesthood, and there are plenty of descendants of that one. But for God, he has the priesthood of Melchizedek, after which our Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest. And by the way, which priesthood every single believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is a part of? Men and women, young and old, everyone who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ in that priesthood, because in that body of Christ, who is the fullness of God, we are the fullness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that being said now, we turn to the to what Abraham is enabled to do. And because Abraham continued a, a stranger and a pilgrim, uh, he was outfitted to fight, and a man of faith, he was outfitted to fight and slaughter those kings but let me tell you, the last king that he has to slaughter here is the king of Sodom. And this battle is a much more fierce battle and a much more ferocious and a much more difficult battle than simply dividing the 318 fellas and whooping up on five kings in the middle of the night. This one is a much more serious battle, and only because he maintained great fellowship with God was he equipped to handle it. And I want to read it to you. Genesis fourteen twenty one, the biggest battle of them all. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and take the goods to yourself. Now there's the challenge. Give me the people and you keep the stuff. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, and here's to show you that Abram, because a man of faith, because a man in fellowship with God, because a man who remembered the Lord Jesus Christ in his appointed way and uh, maintained that fellowship that is part of that practice. Because he maintained his fellowship, he had the spiritual strength to say to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet. I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. What a wonderful example he is. What a wonderful statement of power. Do you know it is God's desire 
that no one should boast. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, It is by grace through faith, that, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And here Abram knows that he is graciously visited by God. It's nothing of himself, but he's jealous for the glory of God. And he will not allow boasting in any way by the king of Sodom in his behalf. He is not going to allow the king of Sodom to say, I made Abram rich. He said, I'm not going to take anything that's yours. You have all your stuff. Friends, do you know how unusual this is, but how ordinary it's supposed to be? Here it is laid out in the Word of God that Abram would not take anything from the king of Sodom, and we have the pathetic practice going on today of preachers slobbering all over people of the world trying to get some of their money. It is disgusting, it is horrible, and it is totally contrary to the Word of God. Abram saw to it, just like John the Apostle told us that as a faithful man, he would go forth with the Word of God and not take one thing from somebody that wasn't God's people. And so here Abram now shows himself more powerful and more capable than he did when he defeated the king's Ketelamor, those who defeated the king of Sodom. He finds himself even more powerful here because he is able to refuse the offers that the world makes. And friend of mine, let me tell you something. I'm not being high-minded here. You may say, wow, you know, you're really getting up on your horse. Well, I don't have a horse here. I'm just preaching the Word of God. And uh, I know what it's like to be tempted by this world. I know what it's like to fail in such temptations. But I'm here reading the Word of God, and I'm teaching the Word of God. And I'll tell you what, it is unquestionable that the world will offer you stuff for people. Now, fathers, the world is busy offering you money to take your wife away and to take your children away. Okay, maybe not from you, but from the faith. I hardly under I hardly know Christians today, very few Christians today, who will see to it that they have a keeper at home because they cash in on the world's system that tells them that their wife needs to go out and get a second income and work in the world. And so they send their wives out from home just as they go out from home, and we have father and mother working and nobody keeping, nobody protecting that home, and our children have become a prey to the likes of the king of Sodom. Don't take his stuff. Let him have his stuff. You keep your home. You keep your spiritual priorities in line. Don't trade the people. You see you see the gambit of Satan behind the king of Sodom. You see his gambit. You give me the people, you keep the stuff. It's not just children, it's adults. How many men are willing to pay the the price to be what God commends them to be? The scripture says, for example, if any man desires to be an elder, he desires a good work. Simple uh, definition, maybe uh, unapparent work of overseer in the local church. Many want the title. Who wants the work? The Bible doesn't command that you want the title of elder. The Bible commands if any man desires uh, the work of elder or the work of oversight, he desires 
a good work. Do you know what it's hard to find today? It's hard to find men of faith who will do the work of overseeing the people of God. They're busy instead with their stuff. And what happens to the people of God? They are as sheep without a shepherd. Do you know, friends, do you even realize that the Bible teaches that one man never is given the task of overseeing the flock of God? It is not a one-man job. It was never a one-man job. Everywhere in Scripture where you see the work of overseeing in a congregation It is done by several men, and they are not hired men. They are not hired guns. These are men not under compulsion, but voluntaries. Look at their qualifications. They're older fellas. They're not younger fellas. They're not guys who will work for $40,000 a year. They're guys, or $60,000 a year, or $200,000 a year. These are men that you cannot hire. These are men who will not take money for the work. They won't take it, not from the world, and they won't make a contractual arrangement. Let me tell you something. This is what's lacking today, and this is why God's people are in such disarray. It's a sad statement, but here's a wonderfully glorious statement. Rather than lament the condition of things, let's look out here and see that Abram had the faith, and he had the wherewithal. And he had the courage to refuse the gambit of the king of Sodom. Do you know this gambit comes to you in so many ways? It comes to me in so many ways. It comes to us quietly. It comes to us when we're tired. It comes to us when we've we've succeeded. It comes to us uh, not on the heels of our failures, but on the heels of our successes, where we are far, far more vulnerable. And that's exactly what happened here with the king of Sodom and Abram. And what does it result in? It results in no glory to God. That's, that's in fact, if we put together the fact that Abram was jealous for God, that he would not allow it to be said for him that the king of Sodom blessed him. Abram saw to it. And by the way, this is the keeping of a good reputation. You want to have a a good reputation? Make sure that you can say in a good conscience, God blessed me, and that I was not blessed by the agency of man. Now, what portion did he keep? He says, save only that which the young man have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Let me tell you something else. Abram was generous with his own stuff. Abram was generous and gave away or gave back to Sodom only that of his own thing. He did not give other people's stuff. He said these men earned their portion, Aner, Eskel, and Mamre, his confederates. They're going to keep their portion, and the young men are going to keep what they're they're entitled to what they ate. And he paid taxes to Melchizedek. He gave 10% to Melchizedek. Everything else he gave back to the king of Sodom. There are so many lessons here, friends. And, and, and let me tell you that, that those of you uh, who have, those of us that have a desire to be generous, God will allow you to be a generous person. God will allow you to be a giving person. But be generous with your stuff. 
be a giving person with your own things. And, of course, that leads me to the advice I have to give all young men who want to be generous and give. And I'll tell you this, young man, you need to get before you can give. And that, of course, I'd be remiss, uh, having opened the the subject of young men, I'd be remiss if I didn't tell you a little bit about how to get, how to get. And, young man, the way you get is you work for it. You go out there, it's good to bear the burden in your youth. You're made to work six days, not five. You just get on it and do it. 